Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, did you hear that? Even the computer didn't know for sure whether or not I was back. But I am back. And I am ready and raring to go. <laughs> Thanks for uh, all the fill-in work. Uh, Tory Ryder, I know, did a lot of it. And uh, it is always nice to know that you are um, getting a different point of view from mine when I'm off. Because you know what? It takes a lot of um, people coming at these problems and issues of the day from different perspectives to try to uh, get us all on the same page. We are Democrats. We are a big tent, which means that we don't always look at the world Quite the same way as our fellow Democrats. Ah, well, let's see what has been going on. Um, yes, yes, let's start with the weather because, of course, we're, you know, we're Chicago. We do this. So what's going to happen in the Chicago area? Because this is supposedly this massive storm that's going to wreak havoc all across the country. Um, uh, it's going to start to snow tonight. It is supposed to snow until tomorrow, and then gloriously it is all going to turn to rain. Yay! And that's about it. Um, So there you have it. It is also known in this area of the country as winter, and it happens. So uh, we will see. You know, we are not like the east and west coast. We're used to... um, challenging weather and kind of take it in stride, I think much more so than the rest of the country. But, um, you know, they're already panicking on the East Coast. Oh, my God, it could flood. We're going to have rain. Yeah. Okay. so it's going to snow tonight, supposed to snow all night. And um, and then you and I both know that as soon as it starts to rain on Tuesday, it's all just going to turn into Nasty, slushy smush. I believe that is the meteorological term is smush. And uh, <clears throat> and we'll get through it like we always do. So there. I'm sorry. If you have to drive tomorrow morning, be careful. Because guess what? Might be slippery. Okay? Now you've had your warning. Enough of, enough of that. Other news. It looks like there might... Might be a budget. We'll see how this um, impacts Mike Johnson's chances of continuing on as speaker. Sorry about my voice. I'm a little raspy. Some of the, um, as you know, I was on um, medical time off last week. And some of the medicines that I had to take have taken a toll on my vocal cords which uh, hopefully will resolve itself very quickly, (laughs) one way or the other. So I'm going to be a little raspy for a day or two or three. We'll see. There are reports that there is a bipartisan budget. Not, you know, before I left for the holidays, I predicted that Mike Johnson was just going to string the whole process out a month at a time, a month at a time. Because that way he could keep everything funded and not have to face the wrath uh, 
of the uh, far right members of his party. Well, <laughs> sounds like uh, that wrath may be coming because there has been a bipartisan, which means Democrats and Republicans getting together on the same page, uh, have put together a plan to fund the government for the next year, <gasps> a whole year. Yep. Funding the government for a year. Um, they're going to have to vote on it pretty quickly, though, because starting in a couple of weeks, bits and pieces of the government are going to start shutting down. Because of the way they voted on it before, <clears throat> not everything's going to shut down at once. Um, but I think I read somewhere that in a couple of weeks, if there is no agreement, uh, 20% of government-funded things um, will close up shop. And those staggered closings will continue through February. And if no deal is reached by then, then we're going to have a complete and total shutdown of the government. And good luck, Mike. Um, I don't particularly like you, but um, good luck with this one, okay? A couple of big news items I paid attention to. Uh, looks like the longtime head of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, is um, finally bending to all of the various investigations that he is facing, and he has resigned as head of the NRA. People initially thought when he started getting into trouble, this would happen a lot sooner. And then when he was adamant that he wouldn't leave, it seemed like it would never happen. Um, but he's gone. He has resigned. And, uh, you know, the NRA, when it was first formulated, was supposed to be an organization for, like, people who hunt. It was to support them. And somehow it morphed into this far-right organization that um, seems to support guns at any cost. And believe me, as we've all seen, the cost to this country, to our people, to our children, has been very high. Um, no word that I was able to find on who's going to take over or whether or not this possibly means a change in direction. You know, the NRA is so far from where it first started. I don't know even if they look over their shoulder, if they can even see their origins anymore. But um, at least <clears throat> Wayne LaPierre stepping aside is a good move. Also, big holes in airplanes. Hello? Oh, <laughs> uh, my God, can you imagine that? <sighs> there was a Boeing 737 MAX 9 airplane. And one feature of this airplane is that it can be, air some airlines like it because you can configure the seats in different ways. And one of the ways you can configure the seats is with an emergency exit, like midway through the cabin. But if you don't need that emergency exit and you want to make some more money, you had, there was this panel <clears throat> that you could fit over the emergency exit that would cover it up, make it look just like a wall. And um, then you could put seats in there. Makes sense, huh? Except that 
in a um, Alaska Airlines flight, whatever was holding that fake wall in place broke, popped open. And the door that was supposed to be an emergency exit basically got ripped off. So there was a doorway-sized hole in the plane. There was a woman sitting nearby with her son. Luckily, they both had their seatbelts on because they were sucked toward the hole. The boy's T-shirt was sucked off of his body. It is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle that nobody was lost. The plane landed. Um, those kinds of planes were immediately grounded by Alaska and then by others. Um, United Airlines uses a few of them, and then they inspected them. They felt they were fine. They put them back in the air. Then the FAA said, you know, why don't we wait on that? Uh, let's, let's put these planes back on the ground till we can really take a good long look at them. So that's where we are now. There's uh, about a hundred of these planes that have been grounded because of what the FAA is calling explosive depressurization. <laughs> Two words you don't want to hear. <clears throat> so lots of things been happening while I have been recuperating and recovering. Um, and uh, lots of those things are political. Uh, this morning, President Biden made a speech at a South Carolina church uh, commemorating a horrible attack, racial attack, where a white shooter killed a bunch of African-Americans. He um, made a very great and moving speech. At one point, his uh, talk was interrupted by protesters who were shouting, cease fire in Gaza, cease fire in Gaza. Um, the protesters were apparently shouted down by the people in the church who started <laughs> chanting four more years, four more years. Good for them. Um, but I've got a little bit of what uh, Joe Biden said. Plus, whew, lots of stuff going on. Uh, the state of Maine, not sure if it wants Donald Trump on the ballot. And uh, the secretary of state there over the weekend talking about grief she has been and her family has been getting. Lots of stuff about Trump. Let's take a break and we will get to all of that when we come right back. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, God, I've been waiting to play that again. No, there are no more Chinese balloons floating over the United States, but... <laughs> I saved this. Uh, Taiwan says China has been floating balloons over them. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's been about a year since we had our own Chinese balloons, which we um, which we shot down. 
Uh, and now Taiwan has uh, said three more balloons, four balloons, I think, in total have been flying over Taiwan. Hmm. Um, so the the I don't know what's what's with these, you know, because when it came to the United States, China said, oh, oh, we're really sorry. Those were just weather balloons. They had a uh, mechanical malfunction, ended up where they weren't supposed to be. We're really sorry. And now I guess their weather balloons must be pretty crappy because uh, as many as four have been flying over Taiwan. <clears throat> anyway, um, we're going to keep the 99 balloon song handy anytime Chinese balloons show up anywhere in the world. OK, I told you about uh, President Biden today making an emotional speech at um, the, um, oh my God, I just blinked on the name of the Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. Um, He said a couple of things that were really important. First of all, he, um, remember how Nikki Haley got into trouble, if you guys remember back in December, uh, because she was talking about slavery and or, or the Civil War. She refused to say at first that it had anything to do with slavery. You know, people who don't want to, you know, racialize um, the Civil War, they talk, well, it was states' rights. States' rights. That's The Civil War was fought over states' rights. Yeah, some states wanted to keep slaves, and some states thought that was wrong. Okay, all right, Nikki. Um, so today, at a, not mentioning her by name, in his speech at Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina, uh, President Biden made reference to what the Civil War was really about. Listen to this. So let me be clear for those who don't seem to know, slavery was the cause of the Civil War. There's no negotiation about that. Now, now we're living in an era of a second lost cause. Once again, there's some in this country trying, trying to turn a loss into a lie. A lie which, if allowed to live, will once again bring terrible damage to this country. This time, the lie is about the 2020 election. The election which you made, your voices heard. Mm-hmm. President Biden made some remarks in that same address that have uh, started getting a lot of social media attention uh, because of the name that he called Donald Trump. Uh, Things uh, things are going to start getting a little bit more blunt. I would say President Biden is taking the gloves off (laughs) at this point. He's got nothing to lose. And um, so anyway, he was talking about Donald Trump and what he thinks of Donald Trump. Listen to this. They don't have respect for the 81 million people who voted the other way. Vote for my candidacy. And voted to end the presidency. In their world, these Americans, including you, don't count. 
But that's not the real world. That's not democracy. That's not America. In America, we all count. In America, we witness to serve all those who, in fact, participate. And losers are taught to concede when they lose. And he's a loser. You know what? I think we're going to have to take that little phrase and pull it out and maybe... Maybe every day we'll find a way to play. He's a loser. Um, You know, good. Good. Call him like you see him, Joe. And uh, Joe was doing exactly that. Oh, my God. Let's see. There's so much more that I want to share with you. Um, In the last um, several days, a week, there have been so many people talking about so many issues. Um. On Morning Joe, they had their legal expert, a guy by the name of Dave Ehrenberg, and uh, he did a really fascinating interview on uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe. One of the things that he talked about, you know, Donald Trump, we all know about the 91 indictments. He's facing trial in New York. He's facing a trial in Georgia. He's facing a trial in Florida. He's facing a trial in Washington, D.C. And the speculation is, because we can't know how many delays, how many appeals are going to be involved in all of this, the question becomes, will we see any of these proceedings come to fruition um, before the election, which is getting closer by the day? It is now 2024. It, the election is this year, folks. Ah! Anyway, this Dave Ehrenberg made some predictions. Uh, he is, again, MSNBC's legal expert. He was on Morning Joe, and he speculated as to which cases we might see really start to move forward before we vote this year for president. Listen to this. I think two of the criminal cases could go before the election. The New York case, which we often forget about, the Stormy Daniels hush money payments could go. But more importantly, the stronger case, the one that Donald Trump is most scared of, is indeed the case in Washington, D.C. over election interference. That case was built for speed. Jack Smith intentionally excluded any other co-defendants. He only uh, put forth four counts to the grand jury. It is a indictment that was meant to go before the election. And Judge Tuckin is a right judge for that trial. The only question I have is how long will it take the Supreme Court to rule on the presidential immunity? I think what's going to happen is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal, which is expediting the question, will rule. It will not be anywhere close. It will be unanimous, clear-cut ruling, and the U.S. Supreme Court is going to defer, is going to deny even hearing this matter and defer to the lower court, and then it's game on. And I think that's the case that represents the greatest existential threat to Trump's future freedom. He knows it. That's why his whole strategy is to delay it past the election. What do you think about that? Um, The Supreme Court has been... um Asked to rule on a lot of things. Some people are saying that because they've been asked to rule on so many different facets of this election procedure, that they are being really asked to kind of weigh in on the election, which is uh, considering the court we have in place a pretty terrifying prospect, don't you think? I think so. Um, in Maine, you know, in Colorado, 
uh, they said they were going to take Trump off the ballot. Uh, in another state, that same measure was rejected. Maine's secretary of state um, has been um, very involved in these kinds of issues. And that has resulted in a personal cost to her and her family. She's a woman by the name of Shenna Bellows. She's Maine's Secretary of State. And uh, she was interviewed over the weekend by Jen Psaki. And she talked about not so much what's happening with the ballot, but the fallout. And believe it or not, she is able to come up with kind of a silver lining to everything that's happened. Listen to Shenna Bellows. I wanted to ask you, I mean, you are one of many officials who has been, who has received threats against you and your family. That's, I'm sure, been very, very difficult. Has that level of vitriol surprised you? I mean, you're part of the main community. You probably know um, a lot of people in your community. I mean, how have you felt personally about that? I was prepared for a strong reaction potentially for people to disagree with my decision. But there are processes for our disagreements under the Constitution and the rule of law, right? Mr. Trump has the right to appeal to courts. If people think that Maine law delegates too much authority to the secretary, there's a process for amendment of a law. I wasn't prepared for the aggressive, abusive, and threatening communications uh, targeting not only me, but members of my family Mm -hmm. and people who work for me. I wasn't prepared for swatting. But I will tell you this, now that a week has passed, I believe that that violent rhetoric, right, those threatening communications, they're designed to scare and to silence people. They're designed mm-hmm. to send a message to people that it's dangerous to do their job, to uphold the Constitution. Most people, like the country song, my favorite country song goes, most people are good. And mm. the overwhelming support that I've received, including um, people who tell me, you know, yesterday I was talking to one individual who's in my community and he said, I'm a Trumper, but we're good. And Mm -hmm. I think that is really important. We can agree to disagree on candidates and issues, but we're together in community. And really here in Maine, I've been very heartened by the level of support, including with people who disagree with me. How about that for a silver lining, kids? Yeah, she, her family, her coworkers started getting horrible attacks. But then there were also people who just said, you know what? We see the world differently, but that's okay. I think that's going to have to be uh, our attitude going forward on this. I don't see how we get through 2024 any other way. We are going to take a break. There's lots of stuff going on in Wisconsin. We are going to talk to our good friend, Pat Kreitlow, about all of it when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Pat Kreitlow is the founder and editor of the Up North News, where you can go to learn all things Wisconsin, a state we in Illinois love to watch and um, also get uh, beaten by in football and make fun of in general. Pat, how are you? Happy New Year. Oh, we're, we're happy New Year to you, too. Yes, we're a little happier over here, but uh, 
you know, we also have to go to Dallas to play the Cowboys now. So our, our, our enthusiasm over the Bears game uh, is, is very short-lived, um, unfortunately. Still, a win's a win. Yeah, especially over the Bears. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> Thank, yeah. Thanks for I'm trying to soften it for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I you tried. Do. But it felt so good. Yep. Yeah. Hey, I was, um, I was really curious to see what would happen. Remember, uh, you're a speaker. Uh, Robin Vos was going to impeach Janet Protasiewicz, your Supreme Court judge, because because of things, things. And because she was things. not going to yes. do the things he wanted her to do. And she wasn't going to recuse herself. And she wasn't going to do this. And she wasn't going to do that. And he had a plan for how it was going to work and how they would hold the seat open and basically um, just derail everything. And uh, where did where did that go, Pat? What has happened? Uh, it, it went it went absolutely nowhere. And uh, uh, Speaker Voss has now you know again acknowledged that uh, it is uh, super unlikely is how he phrased it in in one interview recently, uh, saying that you know the original threats to impeach Justice uh, Protasiewicz if she didn't step down from the gerrymandering maps case uh, that was more raised about the possibility of how she rules. And even then, again, it was all a bluff. It was all to, to appear tougher than they really could follow through on. And for folks who haven't been following this, on the Friday before Christmas, it was Friday, December 22nd, at about 3 in the afternoon, while a whole bunch of us thought we were off duty for the weekend, suddenly had to go racing for our keyboards when the state super, the state Supreme Court did indeed rule that the current legislative maps are unconstitutional and uh, new maps have to be drawn. The first deadline for that is this coming Friday for all the parties involved in the court case to submit their proposal for new maps. So this coming Friday the 12th, would uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. Voss himself be submitting a map? Would these be a Republican map, a Democratic map? How is this going to what's going to happen on the 12th? Yeah, when, and when I say the parties to the case, I mean in a, in a legal standpoint, which does include the the Republican Party, the the legislators who are part of the case, and they have been saying, "Oh, that is that is too soon. We couldn't possibly have maps ready by then." When the record is quite clear that dating back to 2011, uh, they have had access to literally thousands of possible maps that they could submit. And right now, what they seem to be doing is more of a delaying tactic. I think that their last, uh, you know, Hail Mary is that you can slow walk this process enough or get the U.S. Supreme Court involved that the maps wouldn't be ready by about mid-March is when they have to be done so that um, candidates can file paperwork and run in races this November. Correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, but didn't the Supreme Court say that if you guys can't get your act together and come up with a new map, we, the court, will create a map and impose it? So how does delaying work in their favor? Uh, it, it doesn't. It's uh, Again, you can tell that they were not prepared to handle life without being able to rule with the iron fist that they had for over a decade until, you know, uh, Judge Janet became Justice Janet Protosewitz, and they have been 
trying to throw anything to the wall to make it stick. And so part of it is claiming that this accelerated timeline is is too much. And again, they want to be able to run to the conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court and say, we're victims here. We're not getting our due process. Could you please make the Wisconsin Supreme Court slow down or, or even somehow overrule what they're doing? So, yes, the state Supreme Court will almost certainly have to draw maps, which is not unprecedented in any way, shape, or form. But they start by asking all the various parties involved in the case to submit their ideas, and then uh, the state uh, Supreme Court justices will, will write something. Of course, there's always the chance that the court said that if Governor Tony Evers and the Republicans in the legislature could agree on new maps themselves, then the state Supreme Court justices won't have to draw one. But, you know, there, there's a, a snowball somewhere in hell right now that has better odds of lasting than of Evers and the Republicans getting together on maps. So when do you think, do you think they will try to get this before the Supreme Court? Do you, do you think they've got a shot at that? I am admittedly in the minority of people who would answer that yes and yes. And I don't like to be this cynical in my advancing age, but <laughs> I've just seen I've seen enough to to know that while many people here are they are right to be optimistic, I'm just going to choose to be overly cautious because we have seen this, you know, US Supreme Court uh, become so highly partisan uh, not just in map cases, but you know what we see. Uh, what we saw just the other day, uh, keeping in place that draconian uh, abortion ban in Idaho, rather than staying it mm-hmm. until they hear the case, they're like, "Oh yeah, let that that go ahead." I mean, it, it's it, you can never say never with people who are well. At, as we learn more about Clarence Thomas and the other gifts that they've received and everything, you know, I just don't trust them as far as I can throw them. Yeah. And frankly, I don't see any reason why you should. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I want to just real quick before we move on, circle back to the uh, Robin uh, Voss stuff. Do you think he did it n- not only to draw attention to himself and his party, the party of grievance, but do you think he was trying to intimidate her? Like, I want you to know that every move you make, you know, we're going to analyze and you better you better watch it. You know, because, you know, there are some people who can be intimidated and who will change or soften their stances to try to avoid that kind of scrutiny. Do you think that that was this? Yes, I I think so. One hundred percent that the same reason that they have been so abusive toward Megan Wolf, the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, again, pretending to fire her, even though a court struck that down, you know, going through the talk of maybe impeaching her. And you could, when you heard Justice Protosiewicz ask questions in the oral arguments part of the Supreme Court taking up the maps, her questions were extremely moderate down the middle I'm not saying that that's because of any intimidation factor, but I am saying that if, if she had wanted to come at the questioning from a, a far left perspective, you know, she was probably less likely to knowing that there's these threats of impeachment sitting out there. Mm-hmm. 
okay, uh, let's move on uh, to the fake electors in Wisconsin. Where does that whole issue stand? What's going on with those people? Uh, at the moment, uh, the, the fake electors case is, um, well, let's, see, let's, let's divide this up right. The main thing is that there was a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit against the fake electors filed by a couple of the rightful Biden electors and one or two other citizens, um, essentially accusing them of fraud and seeking damages. And they, they, the fake electors, agreed to settle the lawsuit um, and in return had to file paperwork acknowledging that their original paperwork claiming that Trump won Wisconsin was wrong and that they knew it was wrong at the time. They filed these fraudulent papers with the Wisconsin Secretary of State's office. So they had to file a a letter, basically, to the Wisconsin Secretary of State's office recently to say, yeah, that was that was not right. We shouldn't have done that. Well, one of those 10 fake electors, his name is Robert Spindell, and he is still a member of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, which is made up of three uh, Democrats and three Republicans and has an administrator. And despite now being essentially adjudicated as and, and, and identified as committing election fraud, he is still sitting on the body that oversees Wisconsin elections. So when he filed that paperwork with the Secretary of State's office, the Secretary of State is Sarah Godlewski, whose name you might recall mm-hmm, as being yeah. one of them. She's a former, former state treasurer, former candidate for U.S. Senate, She's now the secretary of state here in Wisconsin. And the moment that that new paperwork was filed where Bob Spindell had to acknowledge that he, he knowingly tur- turned in false information, Godlewski, uh, you know, went public and said he filed this false paperwork with my office. He lied to the people of Wisconsin. He needs to step down. And yet surprising absolutely nobody Neither Robert Spindell nor the Republican leader of the Wisconsin State Senate, Devin Lemahieu, uh, thought that that was a good idea. He continues to serve. He continues to serve with the blessings of the Senate Republican leader, uh, despite everything that we know about him. Isn't there a wouldn't there be a provision in law? Uh, like, excuse me, you've committed a crime. You've admitted you've committed a crime. Uh, well, I take it there's the no, See, uh, you've not, got, you know, you've got 1849 abortion laws, but you've got no law <laughs> preventing somebody right. who admits they did something wrong from being removed. Right. And that's that that's the fine line here is that they're not admitting to a crime. They're simply admitting that they turned in false paperwork and that they they know that it, it is false, but they will not face criminal charges, at least as far as we know. We still haven't heard anything from the Wisconsin Department of Justice that indicates that these fake electors will face criminal charges, as is being done in other states. You also had, you know, our friend Kirk Bankstead from the Monaco Brewing Company. He had he filed a complaint with the Wisconsin Elections Commission saying, you know, you guys need to take action against these fake electors, including the one that sits on the Elections Commission. But the Elections Commission basically punted on it and said, you know what, take that to court. Let's see what the court says. And so Kirk Bankstead has, has filed, filed a, a lawsuit still trying to get some kind of actual legal consequences for these fake electors. Right now, the only consequences 
was that as part of the settlement in the civil lawsuit, they agreed not to be electors in 2024. None of those 10 will serve as electors. And none of those 10 electors will ever serve as an elector if Donald Trump's name is on the ballot, either in 2024 or some future election. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> you know, you gotta you gotta hand it to Manaqua Brewing. They are not afraid of a fight. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. That's that's uh, that's that's Kirk Bankstead's you know normal mode of operation. And you know, so he he was there last week in in Madison, filing the paperwork and gathering the the TV cameras. He of course has is a frequent presence on radio, and he is absolutely unintimidated. Uh, and and uh, absolutely not going to uh, he's not going to waver at all in trying to pursue some kind of legal consequences for these fake electors. Amazing. Just amazing. Pat Kreitlow, Up North News. We need to take a break. There's more going on in Wisconsin and we will get to it right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Our good friend Pat Kreitlow is the founder and editor of the Up North News. It is uh, a news site for all things going on in Wisconsin, local, statewide, um, political, and frankly, just stuff that you need to know about your neighbors and your neighborhoods, too. And we are pleased that Pat joins us from time to time to bring us an update. And Pat, there is a part of me that hesitates to even ask you about the latest of what is happening with Ron Johnson, your ever wackier senator from Wisconsin, who seems as the days go by to be less and less tethered to reality. Um, Give us a Ron Johnson update. Well, the latest from the senior senator, uh, which always seems odd to say, but uh, the senior senator from Wisconsin spent the New Year's weekend uh, bragging to media, uh, right-wing media, of course, that he has been and will continue to block any chance of a bipartisan border deal, which, of course, is saying the quiet part out loud, because as we continue to hear with all of the uh, photo ops and all of the games being played down at the southern border and and these demands that the Biden administration do something about this. Well, Democrats in, in the Capitol have been trying, honestly, for a generation to try to get something done in terms of bipartisan immigration reform, which would include border security. But Senator Johnson said recently that he, he will continue to, to blow these things up. In other words, he's moving the goalposts. There's nothing that Democrats or the Biden administration could do, probably short of, you know, shooting border crossers on site, you know, men, women or children. There, there's nothing that they would blow up because then they don't have that issue to talk about anymore. And that's what Ron Johnson was essentially doing was saying the quiet part out loud where you complain about the border, you complain about the worker shortage out there, you fail to connect the dots because, well, for for reasons I don't even want to care to get into, that they don't want, you know, immigration on the rise in this country, even though 
legal immigration reform is what we so desperately need in this country and certainly here in Wisconsin to address the labor shortages that we have. But Ron Johnson has never had any interest in that. So let me get this straight. He isn't saying I'm not going to go along with this particular bipartisan effort because it has things in it I don't like. He is simply saying that anything, any measure that is put forward that has bipartisan support, he is going to automatically oppose because of the bipartisan support? Yes, basically. I mean, look, the one thing that we we remind our folks of all the time at upnorthnewswi.com or in our newsletter or radio show is that we may talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law, for example, but not a single Republican from Wisconsin voted for that. And Ron Johnson's been that way with everything from immigration to gun safety to you name it. And now, of course, he's taking it a step further and and wanting to tie, tie any border deal to aid for Ukraine. He, of course, has consistently uh, uh, taken the pro-Putin viewpoint that Ukraine should basically just roll over and, and let Russia, you know, take whatever they want. So when Ron Johnson, again, talks about Ukrainian aid should be tied to a border deal, but he also doesn't really want a border deal, that's his way of saying that he is very good with, you know, Putin continuing to be on the march and starting to threaten more parts of Europe. Uh, none of this is new to Ron Johnson, other than that, again, he, he has a higher level of audacity than ever before uh, this, to essentially cut the legs out from underneath fellow Republicans who are down there at the border, posing for the cameras, saying, oh, we really need a deal. And he's saying, ah, there's never going to be a deal. I'm always going to vote against it. And how is that sitting with the people of Wisconsin? I mean, I understand Ron Johnson because everybody said he was the most vulnerable senator. If anybody was going to get kicked out of the Senate, it was going to be him. And then it, and then it didn't happen. So he's got to be feeling, you know, kind of full of himself these days. But, you know, obviously he must feel that these kinds of statements, these kinds of positions are popular at home. Is that the case? Pat? Oh, no. No, he knows they're not popular at home, he, especially, you know, having been, you know, freshly, uh, you know, reelected in, in 2022. And, and yeah, he won reelection in the closest ever U.S. Senate race in Wisconsin history. But a win is still a win. And so he has six years of job security, a guy who has never, and let me say this clearly, never had he's never been above water from an approval level standpoint his approval rating has always been lower than his disapproval rating he knows he's not popular but in in the case of you know beating mandela barnes in 2022 you just had to get a couple of uh, billionaire friends who he got big tax breaks for back mm-hmm. in 2017 you just have to get them to, to pour enough money in. They poured enough money in to run wildly racist ads against Mandela Barnes. You squeak, you went through in a squeaker, and then you can continue to be this extreme and don't don't really care one bit that you are out of out of step with the majority of Wisconsinites. Wow. So he's he's like Clarence Thomas. He's untouchable. Yeah. Yes. 
Absolutely. He is. And that's where, you know, when we can, we try to, try not to, we try not to get too excited about Ron Johnson, what he says or what he does, because he doesn't do much and he just talks a lot on white, you know, right wing media. So when you do hear us bringing him up, it's normally because, again, he has managed to move the goalposts or he's managed to move the level at how audacious or incorrect he is when he starts, you know, yammering on about this issue or that issue. Wow. I am so sorry for you, Pat. I am so, so sorry <laughs> for you. you. I mean, I know as a, as a journalist, sometimes people like that make a great copy, but the great the advantage to great copy is more than offset by the damage people like that do uh, to a state. Well, hey, before I let you go, yes. I want you to weigh in. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in continuing to talk about and keep an eye on in 2024 is the involvement and participation of young voters, um, particularly the really young voters, the 18 to 24 year olds. Um, what do you see happening in Wisconsin with that demographic? I am so glad we're ending on on a positive note. These these young voters, I mean they they give me reason to go on. They are absolute rock stars. They are completely the opposite of the apathy that that you know came of my early you know Gen X uh, you know cohorts. They have seen the injustices. And instead of getting cynical, jaded, throwing their hands up, they are running for office at earlier ages. They are voting in bigger numbers as 18-year-olds than, than other 18-year-olds for, for over a generation now. They, they do my heart good, and they're going to be out there again in, in 2024 because of what the Dobbs decision did uh, and because of the other things they continue to say and do and the continued you know, buffoonery of Donald Trump and, and his minions. They, they hear all this, and they know they can't do much in the world yet at a young age, but they can vote. They understand that it has power. They understand close races and purple states, and they get involved, and they do it. And that's, that is absolutely going to happen again this year. Are they generally being um, organized by any particular group? I mean, is this an individual effort? Uh, are there successful efforts, you know, uh, to bring them into the Democratic Party? Are there other organizations? I mean, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember the creation of Rock the Vote on MTV, yep. which was, you know, supposed yep. to get all young people interested. Um, how do you see them? Um, are they affiliated or drawn to any particular political organizations? It seems to me that they they are by and large uh, self recruiting. They they are not uh, you know being won over by you know Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or you know Tony Evers or anything like that. They they're simply seeing the world and they remind me much more of you know maybe early baby boomers uh, you know when it came to the Vietnam War saying, well, nobody else is going to save us. Nobody else is going yeah. to change the world. So we'll do it. They know that they have allies. Don't get me wrong. We're, they have, there's a lot of allies like us who want to have their back. But I don't think we should take any credit for, for them getting involved. Uh, much like there were people who, who self-recruited because they were unhappy with the Iraq war in 2006, you have that going on right now with people who want to save 
democracy, frankly, from everything they've seen in the Trump years. And God bless them for it. Amen to that. And I really do. Um, I understand the um, the abortion sort of Vietnam kind of comparisons because, you know, I mean, they now understand that government can really screw up their lives, you know, um, that yep. it isn't uh, necessarily uh, one of those situations where it doesn't really matter who's in power. You know, they're all the same. No, <laughs> I think they've they've learned. I mean, can you imagine being alive now and having fewer rights than when you were five years old and seeing that not only do you have fewer rights, but the trend to even potentially take away more of your rights is is moving in a direction that you that you don't like. I mean, it's it's really personal. And and, you know, I agree with you. I think it is the most wonderful thing. And it really makes me mad when I see this all this. Well, you know, young voters aren't sure if they're going to support Joe Biden. If it comes down to another Joe Biden versus Donald Trump election, I think you will see young people support Joe Biden in huge numbers. You absolutely will. You you will in 2024. They understand the way the dynamics work. They also know that what this means is that four years from now, you're going to get a whole new generation. You know, Trump's not going to be up there again in, in 2028. Joe Biden isn't going to be in 2028. So essentially they're saying, OK, this this one more round because we need stability. But they're going to be looking at a lot of, you know, younger leaders out there. Your, you know, your Gretchen Whitmer's, your Gavin Newsom's, other younger people who's, you know, who I haven't named here. And they realize it's going to be a different world. So get involved now so that there is a democracy to, to fight for for these younger candidates come 2026, 2028 and beyond. Wonderful. Pat Kreitlow, founder and editor of Up North News. Um, again, give the website out real quick before we go, Pat. Up North News WI and Up North News WI. Search for that on social media as well. Thank you, Pat. We are going to take a break for news, and we're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. While um, I was away, we had the January 6th. What do we still call it? An anniversary? I don't know. I tend to think of anniversaries as generally positive things, and this sure as heck wasn't, uh, remembering of when a mob tried to overthrow the government. Oof. Some of the pictures and videos from that day uh, were being recirculated, and man, oh man, it's just as hard to watch now as it was to live through. want to talk about that now with Mike Sozan, who's a senior fellow on the Democracy Policy Team at Center for American Progress. Hey, Mike, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Joan. And thanks for having me back on your show. Thanks for being here. And despite the fact that we um, started this year um, looking back on one of the darkest days of our of our history, I really think 2024 is going to be a good year. I don't know. I've got I've got my Pollyanna hat on and I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to go. I, I love that dose of optimism. I try to stay optimistic as well. There are a lot of bright spots. 
There are a lot of challenges, of course, but I think um, if people summon their their better angels here, and especially if people can kind of put aside some of their partisan differences for the good of saving democracy, I think 2024 could be a very good year for our nation. I think so, too. One of the things that I was thinking about as we revisited January 6th was how the Republicans, those in office, and um, (laughs) frankly, those who are strong supporters of Donald Trump, they are rewriting the history of that day in a way that I find I mean, it's one thing, you know, if your, um, you know, your boyfriend tries to gaslight you in something you're trying to call him on. But it's one thing when you've got a whole group of people trying to gaslight the country about what happened and why it happened. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see it that way, too? Do you feel gaslit? <laughs> I absolutely do. I, I, it is astonishing sometimes. I mean, I, I was just listening um to some of your the, the program before I before right now and um, and I saw as part of the slogan for your uh, radio station you say facts matter and that is absolutely crucial to remember here about the January sixth insurrection and everything that led up to it with Donald Trump's plot to overthrow the valid election we basically saw it unfold and on January sixth. At the Capitol, we saw the riot occurring. We had seen Donald Trump's speech. These facts are, um, they should be incontrovertible. And it is really disturbing to see Donald Trump and other allies trying to flip the script here. Um, Because we know the insurrection was real, it was disturbing, and it was traumatic for us. We have lived through that trauma, and our our democracy was traumatized. And... um, it's, it's, but it's not a date that's frozen in infamy. It's, 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 we are still living with the fault lines in our democracy that were exposed, and we are still having to work together to try to figure out how to address this clear and present danger. And we cannot allow um, gaslighting here. When I was growing up, and um, excuse me, but I'm really going to date myself here. We had Walter Cronkite, and by God, Walter Cronkite said it, and you believed it, and he was a good and honest journalist. And part of the reason that I think that the Republicans continue with their campaign to rewrite the history of January 6th is because they're not getting their feet held to the fire sufficiently by mainstream media. I'm sure by now, you if you didn't see the interview, you've seen a clip of Elise Stefanik being interviewed on one of the Sunday shows by Kristen, uh, Kristen Welker. And Elise Stefanik is calling the people prosecuted for their violent acts on January 6th. She's calling them hostages. And maybe I missed it, but I didn't see any real pushback. I didn't see Kristen Welker jump in and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, you're saying people who commit assault are hostages. No, I didn't hear or see any of that. And I really am worried that the mainstream media 
in an attempt to, I don't know, not lose any viewers or hold their audience or not offend anybody and continue to have access, that they are going to ease the dissolution, the process to dissolve our democracy. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you. And I saw that same interview with Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. And the things that she was saying were so disturbing, um, including the part about the, the, the January 6th hostages. And there was such little pushback from the moderator, as you said. It highlights that the, the mainstream media has been largely incapable of properly covering Donald Trump and the threats from MAGA Republicans and the authoritarian and fascist words that come out of his mouth. Um, And what's ironic, of course, is that many MAGA Republicans, many conservatives just generally feel that the media is stacked with a liberal bias. But I often don't see that. I see Donald Trump getting a pass. I think there's a conservative bias. I think it is the opposite of what is being cited. I mean, the New York Times, somebody did an analysis of just simply which stories like over the last year or two, the Washington Post and the New York Times have focused on and how those stories correlated to issues that were concerning to important to Democrats versus Republicans. And they found that the New York Times, to a a significant degree, focused on the kinds of stories that are important to conservative Republicans. Yes, that's right. I, I, it is something that I've studied as well. And I think that there, I, sometimes I think it's a corporate bias, um, but it skews conservative. And sadly, so many of uh, news entities now are most concerned with getting clicks, getting, getting articles read. So they try to go for the most uh, incendiary sorts of topics. But also it's a lot of both sidesism, which is very oh. dangerous. Yeah. It's, it, it's not just two sides of the, of the same truth coin. It's either something is true or false. And, and sadly, the news sometimes doesn't get covered that way. You're, you're right to invoke Walter Cronkite, who used to be um, the, the most accepted source nationwide. And people would watch him. I think it was on CBS News every night for the nightly news. And people would largely agree around the facts. Of uh, And Watergate was going on at that time, for example, and people agreed on the basic facts, even if they formed different uh, ultimate political conclusions. But now so many of so many people are in their own media silos and there's a whole ecosystem, including on the conservative side. And that's why it's so easy for disinformation to spread. That's why we're seeing rises in ex- political extremism and sadly, more and more political violence. I know that um, with Maine and Colorado trying to hold Donald Trump uh, accountable under the 14th Amendment and removing him from their primary ballots because of his involvement in the insurrection, I know that is headed to the Supreme Court, um, but I don't know how much faith I have in the Supreme Court to bring an impartial ruling to this. They seem so corrupt and so bought. Maybe courts have always been this way and we just didn't have investigative reporters digging into it. But it just seems like we have uh, a very unreliable Supreme Court to rely on if we're counting on them to save us. What are your thoughts on that? 
despite the fact that you and I are trying to be optimistic, I know we're, we're, we're sounding some pessimistic tones here. I think that uh, it's an uphill battle for these cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, because this is a court that has several extreme judge, uh, justices who are willing to um, jettison established precedent, willing to make up new law to suit their purposes. And I, I obviously everyone will be looking to see how the justices decide this case, whether they allow states to take Trump off the ballot or not. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remain hopeful that they that they follow what many of them always tell us that we should all follow the original text as written in the Constitution or its amendments. Right. The, the originalist approach. Well, guess what? The plain text of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, could not be any clearer. It says, as plain as day, somebody who participates in an insurrection should not then be able to hold public office, period. This should be a pretty open and shut case. I think that because it's a case of first impression regarding presidents, sadly, there are a number of off-ramps that the U.S. Supreme Court might go off to um, to allow Trump to to remain on the ballots. Um, but I really think that if they follow the, 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 the letter of the Constitution, that states would have the ability to use 14th Amendment uh, Clause 3 to disqualify him. I'm speaking with Mike Sozan, who's a senior fellow on uh, the Democratic policy team at the Center for American Progress. We're talking about January 6th and the Supreme Court. We're going to continue along those lines with some incendiary comments made by one of Trump's lawyers about the Supreme Court when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Mike Sozan, who's a senior fellow on the Democracy Policy Team at the Center for American Progress. We're talking about January 6th and uh, the insurrection the insurrection that has been laid at the feet of Donald Trump. So he has been removed from the primary ballot because of the 14th Amendment uh, in a couple of states, a matter that's going to be appearing before the Supreme Court. And one of Donald Trump's lawyers, um, Alina Haba, gave an interview talking about how um, the president's effort to stay on the ballot in those states was going to end up before the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court really, really, you know, ought to come through for Donald Trump. Here's a quote. You know, people like Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through hell to get into place, he'll step up like he owes us. My God, if you're Brett Kavanaugh, what do you do with that? Yeah, you know, every sensible American, Joan, knows that when they hear something like that from Trump's lawyer or from any other American, it's just not right. It's not good for democracy. It's why people are losing faith in our courts and our system. And so, yeah, it's so dangerous that she makes a comment like that. And it also illustrates how Donald Trump and others have really warped our political norms and the rule of law over the past many years. We, we see it. It's like a slow motion accident happening in front of us. The, the insurrection three years ago put it into sharp relief. 
but we're still headed towards the precipice. And that's why we all need to remain so vigilant. I'll say one other thing about the court. If the Supreme Court uh, were a, a smooth functioning court that was working in the best interests of the country and under ethical standards, Justice Clarence Thomas would recuse himself from considering this case in front of the court. As we know, his wife, Ginny Thomas, was very involved in preparations for January 6th. Um, and she, there's a whole paper trail involving her um, allegedly um, trying to uh, keep Trump in power, working with his allies and doing such. And it just is highly inappropriate for Clarence Thomas to be uh, ultimately ruling in this case. I don't think, though, realistically, Mike, anybody expects Clarence Thomas to do the right thing. And I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, Justice John Roberts needs to step in and he can't force Thomas to recuse but he could punish him by saying he doesn't get to, like, write any more opinions or that sort of thing. Um, you know, the behavior of Clarence Thomas, I would have to say, is the number one reason why people have lost faith in the Supreme Court. What would you what do you think John Roberts can and or should do? What do you think Clarence Thomas will do? Do you think there's any chance he will recuse? I think there is almost no chance he will recuse, but there should still be a movement to get him to try to recuse. And there were a number of members of Congress who just sent jointly a letter asking him to recuse. And uh, Senator Dick Durbin in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee has become more and more aggressive about Supreme Court ethics, which is good. But um, I, I think the chances of Thomas recusing himself will be small. I wish the Chief Justice John Roberts would step in and force a recusal. And really, I, I, you know, we, it, it's hard to know exactly what goes on inside the chambers of the court. They are notoriously tight-lipped, except when they decide to leak a certain case, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, but but what we're what we are um, uh, led to believe is that Justice Roberts does believe in the legitimacy of the court. He does want to inc- increase trust in the court again, and he's concerned about these sort of issues. But guess what? He's frankly outnumbered at this point by the extreme conservatives on on the court. So there's not that much he can do. But he should, and he must try to save the legitimacy of the court. You said he should force Thomas to recuse, but other than making a public speech that humiliates Clarence Thomas, which I don't see him doing, how can he force? My understanding is that the justices simply do not answer to any higher power. I, I think that's right, Joan. I think he has very few tools at his disposal. I am not enough of a court expert to know, however, whether there is an internal court rule that some courts have that really do vest some discretion with the chief judge or justice of a court over court administration issues, including who gets to sit on cases. There might be some of that residual authority with Chief Justice Roberts. I just don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um <clears throat> As you have been, uh, you know, I talked about, you know, what was going through my heart and my mind as I watched all of the revisiting of January 6th. What went through your mind and your heart 
as you mm-hmm. saw all the news stories get recirculated, all the video get recirculated, mm-hmm. all the social media posts get recirculated on this? It is very difficult for me to see. I worked on Capitol Hill for over a dozen years. In fact, at the, at the tail end of my career, I was a chief of staff to Senator Mark Udall of Colorado. Um, and, and so I was there for a, a long while and had walked all of those halls in the U.S. Capitol. And I know the Capitol grounds pretty well. And more importantly, though, a number of my friends and Former co-workers who were there on January 6th, of course, many members of Congress, some of whom I had the privilege of working with, were there. So it's very visceral to me. And it was heartbreaking, of course, on the day to watch it. It was it was unbelievable that it was occurring. Um Although certainly we had gotten some warnings and certainly I knew that Donald Trump was whipping people up into a frenzy. But to see it unfold was pretty devastating. So each year reliving it on the anniversary is tough. But, um, you know, it's something that we've just got those of us who work on these democracy issues every day and try to bring about positive reforms and try to offer a a vision for a strengthened democracy, one that is truly multi uh, racial and multi ethnic and strong. We deal with these issues every day. So in some ways, I've built up a bit of a thick skin on it, but I'm not going to lie. It still hurts to see it. Yeah. And it isn't just the Elise Stefanics of the world saying that the people who committed violence that day um, were somehow excused or, or were doing the right thing. A lot of Republicans are going after institutions that we have long respected. I'm thinking particularly the FBI in this case. And I don't understand what they hope to gain from that. And mm-hmm. I, I I can't believe that there are people who are willing to go, oh, yeah, the FBI. Yep. I mean, they, I, they are trying to paint the January 6th insurrection like somehow it was some sort of um, FBI clandestine uh, operation. What is what is that all about? What do they hope to gain from that? That is more absurdity. And what they hope to gain is to deflect and to flip the narrative on the head, on its head, and to make it seem like somehow Donald Trump and Republicans were the victims of of a hoax and a plot to keep them out of power, um, which is which is terribly damaging. Um, this also reminds me that so many Republicans on the day of the insurrection and the days after, especially during impeachment, laid blame at the feet of Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy, um, the leader of the House Republicans, did it. You might remember that Mitch McConnell, even though he voted against convicting Trump on impeachment, said this Trump needs to be handled by the courts. You know, there can be cases and prosecutions, and that's where it should be handled. But McConnell also said Trump bore responsibility. Yet within days, that evaporated. And political reality intervened and the Trump base intervened. And we saw how all of that went out the window. And one of the things that's most disturbing, I'll just bring up, is Congressman Jim Jordan. He now heads the House uh, Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Government, as well as the Judiciary Committee. He defied lawful subpoenas 
from the bipartisan January 6th committee. He and others were referred by that committee for punishment uh, for investigation by the House Ethics Committee. Yet nothing has happened to Jim Jordan. In fact, he's been elevated into leadership. And guess what? He now issues subpoenas to others, to law enforcement agencies, to others that he hauls before his committee. And then he bemoans the fact if they don't want to comply with the subpoenas. It is really hypocritical and, again, another danger point for democracy. Yeah. Um, Looking forward, uh, let's see if we can get back to that silver lining. Didn't we start off, Mike, with a silver lining somewhere? Um, Well, I guess the good news is that with all of the video and all of the recordings and all of the social media posts that never die, we do know, we do know that, you know, despite their efforts to rewrite history, we know what happened and we know who did what to whom. And um, I think that whatever the Supreme Court decides to do, the fact that at least two states have acknowledged that and said this man cannot be on the primary ballot, I think that's one of those little areas where democracy is working. It hasn't died yet. I agree. And you and I talked about this a few months ago when I was on. We were saying with the criminal prosecutions of Trump, um, that those are small steps towards accountability and towards enforcement of the rule of law, even though there haven't been convictions right yet. And maybe there won't be. But there are at least some measures of accountability. And that's that's important in our system. And I think one thing uh, back to the glimmer of hope. People were really worried um, during the midterm elections about all of the election deniers who are running for secretary of state in key battleground states. Your listeners know that the secretaries of state are the ones who run elections. And there, um, there were multiple elections across key battleground states, and almost every one, the election denier who was running lost those races. And um, and thankfully, um, the people who won the races were people who were saying that um, they wanted to uphold our system of free and fair elections. And that was a bright spot. And I've got to think that that trend will continue in the next election cycle. People are hearing more and more about democracy. It is being covered, even though I don't think it's always being covered in a balanced way. People are becoming more alarmed with the comments that Trump and his allies make that sound very fascist uh, at root. And so that's why I think that Americans are going to follow suit like they did two years ago, and they're going to realize that democracy is at stake and that their votes are really critically important to protecting democracy. Mike Sozan, thank you so much for being back here again. Senior fellow on the Democracy Policy Team at the Center for American Progress. Take care, Mike. Thank you. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Imagine moving into a new home and deciding that your new backyard was going to become just an incredible place where uh, there's going to be flowers and there's going to be a little backyard garden where you can have some fresh vegetables. You don't really think twice about that sort of thing when you move to a new place or um, when you when you buy a new house. 
Uh, there was a story, though, that was um, published here in Chicago about a woman who um, bought a plot of land next to her home in the back of the yards, and um, she wanted to plant some food, but she decided, God love her, that she needed to get the soil tested ahead of time, and she found lead in very high levels. Her soil uh, was contaminated. Uh, is something that most of us wouldn't even have bothered to think about, but it is a problem, particularly for people who live in urban areas. And unbeknownst to me, there is an organization called Advocates for Urban Agriculture. And this is a problem that they have thought about and they have tackled. We have two people from Advocates for Urban Agriculture. Uh, Jasmine Martinez and Valle Espinoza are here uh, to talk about a pilot program put on by their organization so that you, too, can test for contaminants. Jasmine, Valle, thank you for being here. Hi, hello. Thank you for having us. Hello. Um, thank you for having us. Um, before we get into the, the process, um, I'd like you guys to explain a little bit more about the organization Advocates for Urban Agriculture. Uh, Jasmine, would you like to start on that? For sure. So Advocates for Urban Agriculture, or we say AUA, we are a not-for-profit in Chicago, but we also serve a lot of community members and a lot of the um, suburbs in the Chicagoland area, and we focus primarily on supporting growers, urban farmers, in making sure that they have the resources and the tools and education that they need to grow food, especially in urban settings. So the way in which we do that is that we provide technical assistance, we provide them access to water, we provide them with support such as testing your soil, and we also have a great mentorship program where we pair beginning farmers slash growers with more experienced growers so they can get that community and get that network of connections and resources. And then we also provide funding through grants so small emerging urban farmers can really increase their capacity so they can scale up, they can diversify, they can enter new markets. Really what we're trying to do at AUA is show that growing food in urban settings is definitely viable, it's doable, and people just need the resources, the tools, and the community and network to do it. Okay, Jasmine, a couple, a couple of questions. How do you know if where you live is eligible for this kind of help? Is there a website or a map or something? So we, you can go to our website, it's www.auachicago.org, and primarily we focus on the south and southwest side of Chicago. The reason being is because that those areas tend to have high um, contaminations due to heavy pollution in those areas because typically um, the industrial corridors run through those areas. So mm-hmm. based off... Yeah, so based off history and based off other environmental justice organizations who have done the work, we know that those areas tend to be the most heavy polluted. Do you have to have a certain plot size to qualify? Like, is a backyard enough? Do, do you have to have like a half an acre? 
So in terms of size, there really isn't a criteria in terms of how big, how small. Val can definitely speak more on the different types of sizes that we've tested so far. But right now, really, the priority is as long as you're in the south and southwest side of the area. And then, Val, I don't know if you want to add more in terms of sizing. Well, first, Val, I'd like you to explain your title. I was told you are a soil organizer. Hi, yes. um, My name is Val Espinosa, and I am currently the soil health organizer. Um, that is my current position at AUA. So I'm helping develop um, or continuing the soil pilot program that has been in existence. Um, so I assist in creating um, soil health education, um, creating infrastructure and a database around um, the results, um, assisting growers in further information and research with their results. Um, Yeah, so we do test for different, um, I'm sorry, we do um, have different sites. Um, Some are um, uh, homesteads, some are green spaces, public spaces, or urban um, farms, or what you would consider an urban farm. So um, we include all growing spaces um, in terms of our soil testing. Well, years ago, many years ago, I took a botany class at um, the Chicago Botanic Garden. And while that was fascinating, our instructor, her area of expertise was soil. And I have to tell you, it wasn't something that I had really given a lot of thought to. But when this woman talked about soil and her eyes lit up And she would tell us, I mean, we think, you know, I'm sorry, but for me, you know, it's like dirt. I got dirt here. Here's a bucket of dirt. But it's there's so many different kinds of soil and so many chemicals. It is it's a little wonderland. Um, I mean, that's a a, a layperson's take on uh, the complexity of of what you study and and what you do. Try to make um Explain that to to our audience, just how complex and how different soils can be. Sure, depending on the region um, and just how Earth itself has evolved over periods of time um, has definitely impacted not only the geological space that we live in, but also the soil type. Um, so here in the Midwest, um, we had three series of glaciation and episodes that continuously happened over aeons of years that have created the sediment that we live here, that exists here now, even the Great Lakes. So um, within those glaciation periods, things how for, soil forms in general in a specific area is based on um, weatherization. It's a chemical process. It's a biological process. Um, so if you think if there was a big glacier here in the Midwest, and over millions of years of um, that glacier receding and having episodes of its um, successions of what they call, um, it created pathways for water. So think of all our waterways um, that from Canada down um, into the Gulf. So all that water um, has been channeling through those periods, through that time period. And so with that um it's been weatherizing rocks. Um, there's been what's called alluation, where the dust in the air is also bringing particles um, throughout the region and settling over a period of time. 
Um, a great example that I like to use for that is sand dunes. Um, sand dunes, when you look at them, they just look like kind of hills of sand. But that is an occurrence of um, a time periods of episodes of particles moving through the air and depositing in, a, in an area over a series of times. So in the Indiana, the sand dunes that exist um, not just outside of Chicago, um, it probably took maybe a thousand years or who knows how long for those dunes to form over, over a time period. Um, and so that's just one aspect of how things accumulate and how soils form over a period of time. Um, and so here um, we had prairie and wetland. And so through this, through no series of glaciation, we were able to um, um, just, I guess, formulate these different um, sediments and the different um, topographies that were able to stabilize our soils in that capacity. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a very interesting topic. And if we think about the state of Illinois within itself, it ranges, but the farmland that even exists in the middle or in the center of Illinois, we have pristine soil there just because of those episodes and that sediment that has been formed over millions of years. Um, even previously, um, or not previously, but in a historical context, that, Cahol that whole Cahokia area was an urban indigenous population that was the largest in the world at one point in the Western hemisphere. And they were able to grow food for um, thousands of people. Um, and so this area has always had the capacity to grow. And so even through those series of glaciations and now, um, we do have um, the ideal sediment um, or soil structure um, within a region for growing. Um, so as we talk about soil as a, a medium, as a form of um, growing, that's very different from a geological perspective. Um, and in that sense, now that we live in an urban setting where people are trying to grow um, and understand um, or recreate an, uh, green spaces for um, um, crop science or home and gardening, um, one of the things that I like to differentiate is like how soil forms in a geological sense and what that means as far as like in a growing medium for a, for a growing purposes and a medium for soil structure when it comes to growing food because it's very different. Well, um, talking so about that, the growing of food, um, Jasmine, how much through the Advocates for Urban Agriculture, how much land in this area have you been able to to test? And and if you could give us an idea of what you are finding. Yeah, I think we were able to test about 55 sites and they vary in um Area. So some of them, like Val said, either were backyard um, sites or community gardens. And in terms of what we were able to find, Val, I'll let you definitely answer that since you were on the ground for that. Sure. Um, so depending on the part of the city or where the actual space where the um, participants were growing, um, it varied. So if you think about Chicago in an urban setting, um, you know, there's been a series of migrations, and so through demolition and remodel and remodel in in terms of um, remodeling and demolition, um, it creates artifacts um, and it creates um, artifacts in the soil that also kind of um, change the natural setting of what naturally existed. And so you're gonna um, find in 
different areas of the city, high levels of lead, um, you're going to find that a not every a not um, a lot of our soils are not um, stable in the sense of growing in a in a food meat, um, in a food sense. Um, just because um, most of the spaces where once were building and infrastructure existed, and so when you're thinking in terms of food, that's not an idea of place where you want to grow food because there's been a series of events that happened there. And so trying to recreate a, a soil structure where um, you want to grow food, it takes time and commitment. Um, and so native plants are always a good option for these spaces because they have longer root systems and they're allowed local pollinators to come. So in that sense, um, we did find that a lot of our participants um, didn't have resources or the capacity in, in education to understand what was needed to grow in a, a proper soil structure. So mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't have resources to compost um, or what means they needed for um, certain plants or crops to grow in an urban setting. Um, and different crops and plants require different needs and nutrients. And so it's, it's, um, it's a very complex um, issue, but... Um, it's great because we have a starting point now of how we can further our education around what it means to grow in an urban setting. We need to take a a quick break here, but I'm going to be back with um, more. We're going to talk about the advocates for urban agriculture and when they find contaminated soil, uh, what do we do to, what do we do to fix it? We'll have that and more when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Have you ever wondered whether or not the soil in and around where you live is fit for flowers or vegetables? Um, A lot of people, particularly those who've lived on the south and southwest sides and who have been subject to a lot of environmental pollutants, are finding that those uh, kinds of backyard gardens aren't nearly as safe as they thought. Uh, there is some testing available from the Advocates for Urban Agriculture, and in a lot of places they're finding lead contamination, they're finding heavy metal contamination. Uh, Jasmine Martinez and Vale Espinoza are here. They're part of the Advocates for Urban Agriculture group. And I don't know which one of you is best suited to answer this, but if you find a problem, is are these problems fixable? I mean, we read about these, you know, toxic sites where, you know, bulldozers come in and take up like the top three feet of soil and replace it with uh, with soil. For most people, that doesn't sound real practical. So what do you do when you find this kind of contamination? Jasmine Vale, whoever wants to take this. Um, so we are currently in the process of creating resources and um, education in this area. But typically, knowing the space that you're growing in is important. Like, what are participants growing for? Are they growing for um flowers or are they growing for food production? And so part of that is if an area is contaminated um, specifically for lead, um, this is something that has been um, historically challenging for a long period of time. And so uh, the initial remediation process would begin with, depending on the resources, stabilizing the area. Um, so what does through that mean, a medium stabilizing like the area? 
Like adding chemicals to um, offset um, what's there? Depending. So there's a lot of different methods when it comes to what remediation actually is and what people, what direction they'd like to take. But initially, like if you're coming from um, a holistic view, um, there's implementations of what they would consider, let's say, for lead, right? Because lead is a dust particle. It has the the, um, capacity to move and over a period of time. Um, the inhalation, right, is mm-hmm. can be toxic and the ingestion. So when you're thinking about lead and something of a dust particle that moves, you want to stabilize that so that it's not exposing, right, to direct inhalation. Um, it's able to be stabilized into the ground. If someone doesn't have the capacity to remove and excavate their soil, um, compost, there's zeolite, there's mulch to stabilize and keep those particles down and into the ground so that it's not an immediate exposure. Um, so there's, it depends on what kind of remediation. There's micro remediation where people are using mushrooms. There's phyto remediation where oh, people can you mean use like you plant sunflowers. the mushrooms and the mushrooms absorb uh, into themselves whatever's bad in the soil? Yes, mushrooms. But depending on the contamination and depending on the exposure, uh, you know, you have to do research on what what um, you're exposed to and in what capacity. So, you know, I'm not just saying just go out there and, you know, plant a whole bunch of mushrooms <laughs> like lead, you know, you're, you're being exposed um, physically through touching and working in that soil. You're inhaling it. Um, so there's a lot of research and there's a lot of, um, yeah, things that you should consider before just, you know, ta- going in and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I would talk to an expert do a lot of research and, you know, there's a lot of different methods that can be taken. Um, and these are just a few to name. I'm not saying it's the only way or it's the correct way. I'm just saying these are things that people have done um, and when it comes to lead specifically. Yeah. And there's probably yeah, a million I'll, other methods. I'll definitely echo what Val said, but there's a lot of different methods. There's a lot of information out there, so it might feel like it's hard to know where to start. Honestly, Chicago has a lot of resources. We also have resources on our website. And for someone who wants to grow food in their backyard um, and they just don't know how and now they're worried about contaminants, I would say to start off with some raised beds, start off with some containers. The best thing would just be to not directly grow in the soil that's in your backyard, um, especially if you're in one of the affected communities. And then if you have the resources, you can. People can do their own testing. It does cost a little bit, but if they connect with us, you know, we can provide them with more support. And if that's not an option, if testing is just something that's not available, like I said, it's really important to just reduce the contact with the soil if you feel or you have a sense that there might be some contamination. And so the best way to do that is doing raised beds where you make, you know, boxes, you bring in soil containers, um, people, t- if you live in an apartment, some people grow indoors, you have pots um, uh, that you can grow by your window where you get the most sun. Really, there's so many creative ways in which you can grow herbs and plants and food in Chicago. Uh, and it's really about connecting with people so you can get that support in that community because we want people to be growing in Chicago. That's something that's definitely doable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, oh, my God, 
Um, maybe, you know, I live in some of these areas where there used to be, you know, hard industry, and I wonder if that's affected my soil. What, what, what steps do they take? What would you recommend? Somebody calls you up and, and says, hey, you guys, you know, I, I'm not sure if my soil is okay or not. What do I do? Jasmine, you want to start? Yeah, that's such a great question. So uh, it would depend on a lot of factors. Um, I guess it depends on uh, if they're growing at home in their backyard or if it's a community garden, if they're interested in testing. I would say the best thing to do is if they have really specific questions to their area that require research and support and resources to connect with us, they can always reach out at um aoachicago.org, go to our website. Um, but if they have more general questions, like I said, they can do some research. Um, they can build these beds, growing containers. Uh, I would say that's like the go-to container. Mm-hmm. But like if they have really specific questions, it's kind of hard to say what someone should do unless we get to know more of the history and context in which they're working in. I know you can go to like, you know, any place that has a garden center, Home Depot or Lowe's, and you can get soil testing kits. But when I've seen those, they seem to be mostly testing for like how acid or alkaline the the soil is. Are there testing kits that you can buy on your own for heavy metals or, or lead? Or is that you have to go to kind of a more professional organization for those? I would say um, maybe um, researching like a local lab that um, tests for heavy metals would be one resource. The the extension at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana has an extension called the Chicago Safe Soils Initiative. Um, Loyola has resources. Um, There's also other university extensions that um, have been doing this work and research for a long period of time. But I would also um, just research maybe a local lab that might be able to assist um, in some of the um, analysis for contamination and nutrient density. Hmm. Well, it's a good place to start. And I thank you guys for sounding this warning because, you know, a lot of people make assumptions and really don't think twice about this. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, really make an effort to be healthy and try to grow your own food and um, discover that you are doing the opposite of, of making healthy choices for your families. And I'm guessing just off the top of my head that um, like when I first moved into the house I'm living in now, I tried to plant some spinach in the backyard and I never got a chance to even really look at it because as soon as it broke ground, the rabbits ate it. Uh, but that's not a way to be sure that your soil is good. Just the fact that the rabbits will eat anything you grow, right? Correct. Definitely <laughs> not an indicator of that, unfortunately. Yes. We will not rely on our neighborhood uh, wildlife to make these decisions for us. Uh, thank you so much, Jasmine and uh, Vale, uh, there with the Advocates for Urban Agriculture. And um, it's something that you might not have thought about, but maybe it's something we should all be more aware of. Thank you guys both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are uh, going to take a break for news, and when we come back from news, 
We are going to be joined by our good friend, Spencer Critchley. He's the author of the book Patriots of Two Nations and the host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. And we are going to be talking about January 6th. We are going to be talking about um, a little bit about Joe Biden's appearance in South Carolina today, speaking at the Mother Emanuel AME Church and uh, other issues of the day when we come right back after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. And I am joined by Spencer Critchley, author of the book Patriots of Two Nations and host of the podcast Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Spencer, I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year. Well, thank you so much, John, and the same to you. Do you think it is going to be a happy new year, Spencer? <laughs> Gosh, just once I'd like to be able to say, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I have no doubts whatsoever. Everything's going to be great. Um, <laughs> I think we have to work uh, as hard as we can this year to make it a happy new year. You know, we can't trust history to somehow play itself out uh, as if it has some kind of uh, pre-existing direction. We want to believe that history makes sense. You know, we want to believe that it's leading somewhere. Um, but I'm one of those who thinks that um, the only way we find out where it's leading is by participating and helping to form it day by day. And I think this is one of those years when it's especially important that we do whatever we can to help history work out in a better direction than it has been in recent times. I think it's interesting the way you put that, because, you know, I hear so many people saying, you know, you've got to get involved in elections and you've got to be uh, supportive of democracy. But I've rarely heard anyone say that what we're really doing is supporting history. We're sort of creating history. um, And I, I hope that it's a history we can look back on and say, man, we dodged a bullet there. But then, you know what? I would have said that that should have been something that we were able to say in 2020. Man, glad we closed that crazy chapter. You know, yeah, we lost our mind for a minute there, but we're back. You know, we know who we are. We know where we're going. Um, And I really sort of did feel that way for a while. And then it all, it seemed to unravel. And I'm not quite Mm -hmm. sure how that happened. What are what's your thoughts on how we went from, you know, feeling like we had dodged a bullet to um, rewriting that history into something completely different? Well, you know, I think that the people who care the most have outside influence on how history goes. And, and uh, you know, as, as the poet William Butler Yates famously said in his poem, The Second Coming, um, and this has been quoted over and over to describe times like these when the, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Um, <laughs> ironically, Yates himself became quite a fascist uh, later on. <laughs> so oh. much as we liberals like to, and I love Yates, I think his poetry is so beautiful and so moving. But of course, that often happens with artists. Um, and he thought better of the fascism later when uh, Hitler came along. But um 
But anyway, that, that line is often quoted by people and frequently by people who are fans of liberal democracy to talk about times like these. And I think it is worth referring to um, because we do see this complacency amongst the people we need most to be defending democracy. Complacency and confusion, I would say, about what they really stand for at a time when the worst, as Gates said, are full of passionate intensity. I mean, the people around Trump and Trump himself represent basically the worst our country has to offer. I mean, short of, you know, outright murderers and rapists, although Trump himself has been adjudicated as a rapist, right? A judge calls him a rapist. Um, But yeah, when those people are full of passionate intensity, if the rest of us are just kind of trusting history will sort itself out or somebody else must be working on it or, yeah, you know what, I'm not really feeling it this time. I'm not super excited. Um, As if the future of democracy is supposed to be maximally entertaining and engaging as well. Yeah. Uh, Then we Uh get what we get, right? And we leave it up to all those people full of passionate intensity. So we need some passionate intensity on the side of protecting democracy. I see passionate intensity growing in our young demographic, our young voters, 18 to 24, 18 to 32. Um, Do you see that as well? Well, yes and no. I think that I've often been impressed by how engaged young people are with social issues. At the same time, I worry very much that we've spent several generations teaching young people to be maximalists. What does that mean, uh, Spencer? To to think that you have to go for getting everything. And anything less than that is not just a compromise, but a corrupting compromise. And when I hear young people say things like, ah, Joe Biden, what's he done? You know, he's just another old white guy. You know, it's the same old story. Well, that indicates that you're not actually paying attention, you know, that you are not actually all that informed about what actually happened during the Biden administration. You know, frankly, huge accomplishment. And also that probably don't understand what Democratic with a small-D politics looks like and how it works, which is not, you know, an overnight revolution and suddenly the millennium has come and we've fixed everything about society. It's a constant, it's the constant slow boring on hard boards, mm-hmm. uh, to quote, who was it who said that? Was it Max Weber, I think, in the early 20th century, sociologist. It's, um, there's, a, there's a newsletter called Slow Boring that's published by, is it Matt Iglesias? Called Slow Boring. I'm sure that's where that reference must come from. But, that, comes from. but that's what that, that's a very astute observation. Politics is the slow boring on hard boards. You have to get up and do the work every day, and the progress is usually incremental, but dramatic progress builds up over time. And we've seen dramatic progress under Biden. And even if Biden were a mediocre president, even if he were simply a placeholder who believed in democracy, he's infinitely preferable to somebody who's trying to destroy democracy. So that's my concern about young people is when I hear hear this talk about lack of engagement because they're not excited about the candidate. Are you excited about still having a democracy? That seems pretty mm-hmm. exciting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and plus, if you actually look into it, he's accomplished more than any president in half a century. 
Yes, it's it's extraordinary what he has been able to do. And I right before we took a break for the end of the year, I was glad to see that he seemed to be mobilizing people to get out there, not just him running around the country and not just Kamala Harris. But, you know, Janet Yellen wrote that op ed that was in The Wall Street Journal that was like, hey, the country's doing great. And, you know, the head of the um, White House Economic Advisors was being offered to people uh, to do interviews. I happened to do one of those. And I think mm-hmm. it was it was really good to to get the full court press, to get not just, you know, President Biden or Kamala Harris saying the same old thing, but, you know, hearing from other people from other parts of the administration talking to other venues. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about um, I um, was able to hear a talk uh, last November of somebody who's very involved in journalism. And they said that the mainstream media, the big guys, you know, the Washington Post, you know, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the, um, the New York Times, that is the informed talking to the informed. Mm-hmm. And... What we both acknowledge is that the people who are less informed are the ones who really need to get a sense of what is and is not going on. And if the, the if the big ones only talk to those of us who, frankly, are like probably already reading five different you know things every day. And we already really have a sense of what's going on. How do you reach that other audience, the one who's who cares and maybe even shares Democratic ideas, progressive ideas? But, you know, they don't subscribe to The Washington Post or to The New York or to The Atlantic or or to The New York Times. How is the best way to reach those folks, Spencer? Yeah, this is fiendishly difficult because not only, you know, is that a problem, um, but the right has been using all the techniques of marketing to do brand destruction on every one of those brands. Mm. And I've often observed, as the party of business, the Republicans have the advantage of being much more familiar with marketing and much more comfortable with it in their day-to-day lives, Um, whereas Democrats have increasingly become these college-educated meritocrats, many of whom see something like marketing as, you know, vaguely or or wholly distasteful and, and trying to keep <laughs> an arm's-length relationship from it mm-hmm. without realizing this is the ancient art of rhetoric, which not only the classical Greeks, but the Romans, um, the founders of this country, saw as the crucial art of democracy, um, because it's hopefully the principled persuasion of your fellow citizens. Also in the Renaissance, you know, the great flowering of the arts of rhetoric, and a lot of people on the left see all, you know, rhetoric is a bad word now, right? Oh, that's just rhetoric. But in ages past, rhetoric was at the heart of politics, and it was it was actually at the core of a classical education. Someone was studying literature, you know, in those days, um, theology and and uh, you know, grammar. But rhetoric was 
one of the classical arts that you've got in a in a classical education because it was seen as absolutely central to public life, whether you're in a democracy or not, and certainly for a democracy where it depends on mobilizing popular support. Um, but as I say, Democrats, especially well, since the baby boom, basically, and the enormous prosperity in World War II, when so many of them got to send their kids to college, have become more and more educated, and as I often complain, stuck in their heads, in my view, intellectual, rationalistic, and alienated from emotion and um, the common touch and connecting with ordinary working people and and rhetoric, the, the art of persuasion, which, as I think Republicans understand well because there's so much money in it, is all about emotion and, you know, the sound of what you're saying and the look of the mm-hmm. images you're looking at, not the factual and logical content of the propositions that you're making, uh, which in the face of powerful imagery, stirring music and poetic rhythms uh, is just overwhelmed. So that's there's that. And the Republicans have just been, you know, they've been able to build up this enormous media infrastructure and think, think tank infrastructure as part of a decades-long strategy now. They've been able to destroy the brand reputation of all of the credible media so that it's just conventional wisdom in much of the country that they were just lying all the time and they're they're just a, a branch of the Democratic Party, if not, you know, the Communist Party. Yeah. So it's, it's fiendishly difficult. In the old days, Franklin Roosevelt, a master communicator, could reach essentially the whole nation by talking to them on the radio. Yes. And people often say, well, Biden should do fireside chats, but fireside chats are impossible now in the same way because of the fragmentation. Uh, amongst really thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different platforms now. And also, too, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a great communicator. Uh, Nobody is, I think, going to write books about what an incredible orator uh, Joe Biden was. I think you have to find the, the correct way for a particular person's style. I mean, when I used to do media training, um, you know, there were some things that were universal, but, you know, you had to adapt to who a person was and the way they spoke. And you had to find ways to bring out their strengths, which is another thing that I think that um, hasn't really happened with the people uh, surrounding uh, Joe Biden. I don't think they have figured out exactly how to tap into his strengths on a regular basis. Oh, shoot. Spencer, we got to take a break. Here I go oh, again, sure. getting too wrapped up. Um, we, Spencer Critchley and I will be right back, right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations and host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We always have these deep political, philosophical discussions and then I get so wrapped up, I forget, I forget that I'm actually supposed to be driving this radio show in a certain direction. So uh, apologies, uh, which means that we have um, not a particularly long segment now before our next commercial break. Since we ate up, I blame you, Spencer. I really think it's your fault. <laughs> that, you well, know, I was we... just about to blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we, you were talking about rhetoric and how important it is. And do you mean by rhetoric 
the ability to convey your ideas? Is that how you would define it or would you define it a different way? Well, it's persuasive speech, you know, essentially. And so you bring together all the arts of writing and speaking to be persuasive. And and the informational content of what you're saying is only a very small part of that. And this used to be at the core, as I say, of the classical education, because, you know, if you go back to a figure like Cicero in Rome, famous as an orator, and, and the ability to to speak persuasively was very highly respected. People still study his speeches. Um, the um, famous, um, oh gosh, his name is flown out of my head, but it's his speech in the middle of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, but one of the most famous, oh, Pericles, one of the most famous speeches, speeches in history. And if you go back and actually read it, it's incredibly stirring and inspiring even today. But um, as I said, I think a lot of Democrats have been become skeptical of this, this whole area and have retreated into the rational part of their minds, um, adopting this kind of Enlightenment era attitude that only reason uh, matters, really, and everything else is an attempt to bamboozle you, essentially, which it very often is, but it's all the more reason for honest people to be good at it, mm-hmm. because otherwise you are surrendering the most powerful weapons to the worst people who have no compunction about manipulating people and outright lying to them and recruiting them into your cult, essentially, and li- to live in a, a really malignant alternate universe. You're, it's as if you've surrendered all the most powerful weapons and, you know, you've kept the water pistol. And you're gonna you're gonna fight you're gonna fight for all that's good uh, armed with your water pistol. It's as if we need uh, someone like, say, Aaron Sorkin to write all of our um, arguments. You know, we need we need those West Wing monologues that explain yeah. everything and wrap it all up and tie it Although, all together, but yet in a yeah. way that moves us emotionally. Yeah, yeah, and and that was amazing. And, um, you know, Obama, in many ways, was so much like the Obama campaign, especially more than the White House, I think, uh, was so much like the West Wing that it was hard to tell which came first, whether, you know, I mean, chronologically, the Obama campaign came after the West Wing had already been on for a long time. But the West Wing was so much like the Obama campaign, it was almost as if, Aaron Sorkin could look into the future. Hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and I know that a lot of the young people on the Obama campaign had watched the West Wing, and it was it was um, influencing the way they did politics in a very good way. But that, too, is also based on a, a sort of fantasy of a particular view of politics that suits people like you and me really well. Um, but it's kind of a self-selecting group, right? And I think you were saying something very important just before the break about when you were coaching people on media skills, that you have to coach the actual person you're talking to. Yep. And that person might not be President Bartlett, right, yeah. from the West Wing, and it might not be Barack Obama, and it probably won't be because people like Barack Obama come around maybe once in a generation. Um, but... Um, so it could be somebody who's not particularly articulate or inspiring, but you work with what you have. And very often people who are really not all that fluent, um, if they project authenticity, whatever is authentic for them, that really works. 
Well, that's or, Donald Trump to a T. I mean, he's not yeah, particularly I mean, lies, well-spoken. He doesn't use all of his words correctly. He doesn't seem to have an understanding of some of the words that he is using. And yet, and yet, you see what he says and how it resonates on a gut level with the people who are at his rallies. Yeah, and they, they take it as authentic, which is extremely puzzling to liberals. But it is emotionally authentic. I mean, it clearly, he seems not able to control what he says, really. I mean, he does crafty because he has learned some basic skills as a liar, obviously, as a con artist. And he just keeps running through the same few tricks over and over again. Um, but I think there is an emotional authenticity to it because he is that impulsive and childish and narcissistic and self-obsessed. So you... And and just the outrageousness feels like authenticity because a lot of people feel like finally somebody's breaking through all the falsehood we're constantly uh, swimming in all day long. And, you know, I think that's another one where Democrats need to wake up is the consultant class in Democratic politics. Oh, my God, I am so frustrated with them. (laughs) I'm always reluctant to do this sort of. Uh, you know, internal finger pointing that Democrats are prone to. But I think this is such an important time. We need to call out bad performance where we see it. And there is like a permanent class of Democratic political consultants who I think are so mediocre and who just keep doing the same stuff over and over again. And it just rings so false. Um, Give me an example. Somebody was on TV on one of the news shows. She was running for office, and she's a new candidate. And she started out saying, you know, look, I'm not a politician. I'm I'm a mom first and foremost. And here's what I know. Okay, so what she just said, I would bet 99 to 1 she was coached to say by a, a consultant. And it's supposed to sound authentic. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you sort of know how that business works, you know, you know I've worked in that business, and you've even if you're just a regular person in the public who's listened to a lot of news, you've heard that comment over and over. I'm not a politician. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm a mom or I'm a dad or I'm a veteran or I'm a whatever. Right. And here's yeah. what I know. Because that's what I know. Politicians like, aren't I'm, real. But 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 if you're a veteran, like, that's I'm, real. You know, I'm a real I'm a real person. But the thing is that if you were the first person or even the first of the first thousand people to say that, it might have some impact. But if you're the millionth person to be coached by a political consultant to talk like that, you just sound phony. And the the fact that you're trying to sound authentic makes you sound that much more phony. Mm -hmm. And, you know, authenticity is usually surprising. If you're revealing who you are, it's probably something distinctive to you, not something that you would hear every single other politician who's been coached likely to say. Yeah. And, and, you know, another example is somebody like, like... you know, somebody like a Jason Kander, who before he dropped out of politics, had a pretty meteoric rise. And I heard him actually speak in person. And he wasn't like, you know, by the time he finished speaking, I had a sense of who his authentic self was. He didn't have to say, well, you know, I'm a this or I'm a that and I'm not a this yeah. and I'm not a that. You know, he just he spoke from the heart yeah. about what he thought and what he believed and the rest of it just sort of fell into place. Um, Spencer Critchley and I are going to continue this riveting discussion, but this time I'm going to remember to take a commercial break. We'll be right back in a couple <laughs> of minutes. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations and host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Spencer, you talked uh, a couple of minutes ago about the consultant class. Um, Political consultants are um, pretty much considered vital, particularly the higher up the food chain of the race you're trying to run. What is it you said, aside from the fact that they, you know, they have these sort of cookie cutter speeches that they give to candidates? What else do you think that they need to do better? Man, uh, something needs to shake them up. The, the, on the Democratic side, especially, an industry has grown up that seems to be impervious to, you know, win-loss records. Um, people keep doing the same stuff that has lost multiple elections in the past. And so much of it is laziness. That if you want to find, like, hardened conventional wisdom and people engaged in rote behavior, you'll find that a plenty amongst too many uh, political consultants uh, who think that there's sort of a way, to, a way to do a campaign, which amounts to the way we always do a campaign. Mm-hmm. And there certainly are things that you always have to do. You know, there are components of a campaign um, that you always have to be doing to pay attention to, you know, building up your alliances and doing, you know, on-the-ground organizing and all of that stuff. You, you have to do that. Um, but people just go through the motions so often, and this, this passes for expertise that they can expertly do the same thing over and over again. And one of the worst examples I see of this that's a particular bugbear of mine because it's an area I actually spent a lot of time working on in the past is the way, incredibly ham-handed and crude way that Democratic campaigns use email. And I, I'm guessing that, like me, you have an inbox that's just flooded with and every day text from messages like every, and every candidate in the country. Right. Yep. Like and people you, you've never heard in, of. And um, yeah, they're running what, to the state yeah. house in Alabama or somewhere mm-hmm. and I'm in California and they're asking me to, to contribute <laughs> to their campaign or attorney general of Delaware or something. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even members of Congress who are not, my member of Congress. And so it's extremely unlikely I'm going to be donating no matter how great they are. You know, there's too many of them. And it's so non-strategic because even if they succeed in getting my money, they're diffusing the impact of democratic fundraising by having me donate non-strategically to a race I know nothing about. And who knows if that's the right race for me to be donating to. So, I mean, the other day, um, Harry, I'm forgetting his name, the uh, Capitol Police officer who just announced he's running for Congress. Dunn? Dunn. I'm really glad he's running. He seems like a great guy, and it's terrific that he's, you know, following this path to do some public service and try to make things better. Yeah. Uh, So he announces, next day I have a fundraising email from him. Now, there's no targeting involved in that. Now, I like him, you know. Uh, yeah. I'm not well, it's not a question him, of not but liking him. But I've also got emails from him and seemingly every other Democratic candidate in the country. And why that is happening, I'm convinced, is I don't know this firsthand, but it sure looks like this. And as I say, I know quite a lot about how this stuff works. There's a giant Democratic voter database that's provided by a company called The Van, the, the 
the voter activation network and everybody in democratic politics refers to the van, which is this enormous database. Um, and you want to have that with every potential democratic voter in the country and as much information as you can collect about them. Now, the whole point of email marketing is targeting. And the power of it is, if you know that somebody lives in my part of California and you know their age and their gender and you can you can have a good idea of their income level, their education level, you can find out what magazines they subscribe to, you can get a really tailored picture of the individual voter if you want it. And you target your messages. You don't do what the Democratic campaigns are apparently doing, which is get a copy of the entire van database for the entire United States and send emails and text messages if you can to every single person, every single Democrat across the United States. But that is evidently what's happening. And in fact, when I get one of these emails, then I'll click through to, to have a look at what their donation form uh, looks like on their website. Very often, whoever is handling their email for their campaign has clumsily exposed the names of their list segments for their campaign. Um, won't get too much into the technical weeds of this, but normally you would not be revealing that, you know, you have a list called all Democratic donors, for example, <laughs> <laughs> or, or major donors as the name of a checkbox that a donor would click, right? Um, but they'll do this, and what they're, what they're revealing is they are essentially emailing, in many cases, to the to the entire van or, or so much of it, they might as well be. And they're just completely throwing away the whole idea of doing targeting, which is just pure laziness because uh, when I joined the first Obama campaign in 2008, this is one of the things I was working on was helping out with that effort was to do very careful targeting of journalists. Again, while telling those journalists the truth and sharing messages we deeply believed in, Right. But by highly doing highly targeted messages to journalists, we would, for example, know that, uh, say, a radio host had a show on every day, say, from one to five and that it was a political talk show and they lead moderately left or whatever. Right. Um, and so we would send them messages that were tailored exactly to their show and, and their time of day and have way more impact that way. Right. Instead of just contacting every journalist in the state with every mm -hmm. pitch for every everybody because then you're training them to ignore you exactly right? but in, instead what happened with our messages was journalists look forward to them because they knew if if they got an email that said hi joan you know we have somebody available today at 2 p.m central time who talks about this topic that you know we think you're pretty interested in you're way more likely to watch for emails like that right um instead of just being trained to ignore all the emails that come from that campaign so anyway, that's one example, but it's a pretty significant one of what's happening over and over again with the Democratic consulting class. And, the, and, and ultimately, what it starts to look like to voters with all these fundraising emails is the whole point of the fundraising is to keep paying these consultants, <laughs> not, to, not to actually achieve a result, especially when you look at the campaigns that have been run, um, like, unfortunately, the Hillary Clinton campaign that were enormously expensive and all of that money apparently was wasted. Well, it certainly some of it should have been spent in <clears throat> other places. But, you know, I think yeah. it's one thing if somebody gets my email address or even my cell phone number because of a political group I've joined or a donation I've made. But I think 
that there are simply times when I'm buying a T-shirt online and I think that that contact information gets sold. And the reason I believe this is because all of a sudden uh, I started getting emails from Nikki Haley and Donald Trump and uh, Elise Stefanik. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, and not. No, they weren't emails. They were texts. They were texts that came through on my cell phone. And, you know, so I would get in there, I would block the number, then I would go back to the text and I would delete it and report it as junk. And after it took about a month, I can't tell you how many of these I got. I was getting one a day. And then there was a little period where everything was quiet. And and now I'm getting texts from Democrats. I'm Kamala Harris, and I really need you to read what I'm about to say and help out. Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I just, you know, I just don't see. And and there's always this element of, oh, my God, you know, we're at a crisis point. You know, I really need you to do this. Like, in the next 20 minutes, and I'm, and that really I find so offensive. No, exactly. I mean, it's turning off voters all over the place, and, and, and I can't, you know, I, let me emphasize, I could not believe more strongly that people need to vote for Democrats this year, even if they're Republicans or whatever they are, um, to save democracy. So by all means, vote Democratic. But Democratic operatives, have to stop sucking at their jobs. Now, this is mm-hmm. not true of all of them. You know, there are people who I always listen to very closely, like David Pluff, for example. Anytime there's an interview with David Pluff, I stop what I'm doing and listen because I think he's terrific. And uh, he's well, did you hear where recently people. there was? Um, he supposedly says that you know he's out of the day-to-day sort of thing, but there were rumors being floated that Obama was trying to get him uh, into the Biden campaign that um, in addition to, you know, the fact like also Joe Biden is concerned that his poll numbers are so bad and Obama supposedly was concerned that, you know, the campaign of Biden was too centralized in the White House. There wasn't enough autonomy. There weren't enough people, you know, out in out in the field who were in a decision making position. And there were there were there was talk that that gentleman, David Fluff, you know, should be brought in to the Biden campaign. And so far, his reaction has been been there, done that. I'm done. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and it's hard. I don't I'm not nearly uh, close enough to any of that to to be able to offer much of a, you know, informed uh, opinion on that. But I can say in general. If. If you can get any advice from somebody like David Pluff, I, I think David Axelrod is is, off, is also very much worth listening to. I mean, all of those senior people on the Obama campaign uh, are incredibly impressive. Actually, Biden's um, campaign in 2020 um, got dramatically better when Jen O'Malley Dillon got involved as the campaign manager, and she's an Obama and, and what do, what do you think she brought? What change did you see? It suddenly what? became. It seemed to suddenly become much more focused and much more disciplined. Suddenly, it was like bang, bang, bang. You were getting these really well focused, uh, compelling messages every day. <clears throat> um, you know, the whole event schedule looked well organized. Everything looked like it was going the way it should. Mm-hmm. Now, 
you know, I wasn't there, don't know, you know, who else might deserve credit for that, but boy, it sure seemed to make a big difference when she joined. And it was at a time when a lot of people were very worried about that campaign. Yeah. Um, Do you think that the, you know, without someone like that, do you think his campaign is starting to look like the old campaign that was in trouble and needs somebody to come in uh, and shake things up? I agree that it's felt a little, a little low energy so far, you know, given the urgency of the situation. I think they know that. And and I, I think that it's clear from certainly Friday uh, with the speech at Valley Forge, and certainly today with the um, appearance at Mother Emanuel Church in um, Charleston, South Carolina, you know, that it, it looks like they're launching into campaign mode, and, and it looks like they've taken on board. You know, it could be that Biden already intended to do this because he's been talking like this for a long time. It looks like they have, in fact, decided to focus on saving democracy as the key of the campaign, which I think is a good way to go. And certainly talk about his accomplishments as part of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is a mission. This, this is a great example of what can be an, expi- an inspiring um, mission to recruit people to join. And uh, I, I think that's a good way to go. Um, in all of this, I think also, you know, another Obama veteran, uh, Jim Messon, is, is famous. Uh, so is Plus actually famous for telling Democrats to stop all the bedwetting, which, you know, Democrats love to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true. And I certainly explain to the audience what you mean by that. Well, Democrats just wet the bed every time they see a bad poll. You know, they're just so doom laden. Somebody once observed that when a Democrat sees a bad poll for their candidate, they panic and start, you know, casting about for a new message. And when Republicans see a bad poll, they just set about changing it because <laughs> they use they use marketing to change the poll, and they do that over and over again. I mean, Hillary Clinton was the most popular public figure in the country. She was on the cover of Time magazine, remember wearing those cool shades, I think? Mm -hmm. Uh, That that image of her with the shades uh, became kind of iconic, and people were talking about how amazing she was with this huge popularity number. And the Republican Party saw that, and that's an example. They didn't like that poll, so they dedicated themselves for the next couple of years to changing it, and they did. They drove her approval number down by... You know, from the 70s, I think, down to what the 30s or something. And you know, the whole point of the Benghazi hearings, as Kevin McCarthy suggested at the time, was to destroy her poll numbers, which succeeded. That's the whole point of the Hunter Biden stuff. It's, it's, the same, yeah. it's the same thing over and over again. They can't dent people's sense that Joe Biden is a decent guy, obviously a thoroughly decent person. But, you know, Hunter opens up all these possibilities so they try to destroy Biden's brand reputation through his son, Hunter. And, you know, same with the New York Times and the Washington Post and the the sort of um, top-level, most credible media in the country. You know, the New York Times used to be called the newspaper of record. It was so credible. They didn't like that. They didn't like those poll results, so they set about changing those by running brand destruction marketing campaigns to convince everybody the New York Times is lying to you every day and just doing what it can to elect Democrats and destroy America. But, you know, Spencer, so, it's, it's, it's easier to tear down 
than it is to explain. It's easier. You know, I've even had I used to have a clip of one of the Republicans saying, you know, uh, we don't do well when we're the party in power. We do well as the minority party. We like to throw stones. We don't like to make policy. Yeah. Well, this is what I mean by surrendering rhetoric to the bad guys, you know, that they have this extra advantage of not caring at all about whether what they're saying is true. And and very often a spectacular lie is going to have way more impact than a sober truth. And even better than that, though, is telling the truth and and, and offering hope and commitment to doing good in a way that's inspiring. And this, this was what Obama did. You know, he was, he was a master of rhetoric, but he was also honest, and his values were great. And people, you know, yeah, they'll go for Trump, um, but if they're offered something like an Obama, you won't get everybody, but you'll get a lot of people. And they'll feel great about supporting somebody like Obama, yeah. whereas, you know, Trump, it's more like... Oh, you just got to feel the damage in your soul at some level. <laughs> you you would think. And, you know, for as <clears throat> for as Ivy League elitist as Barack Obama could be, man, oh, man, <clears throat> he had that preacher's rhythm, that preacher's yeah. rhetoric whenever he took to the microphone. He was an interesting he was an interesting combination of of features is there anybody at any level of national politics right now that you think has that kind of communication ability that kind of charisma even if we've just seen it in small doses and it hasn't had a chance to really blossom on the national stage is there anybody you could say to me oh my god joan you got to keep an eye on this person well, they, you know, you remember Madison, Nick, what's her name? She's a Michigan state. Um, yeah, Haw- Hawthorne, is it, or something like that? No, no, uh, it's a woman, uh, oh gosh, what, is her name Madison? I should, she made, the a, one she who, made a big splash. Yes, I know she, who you're talking about. One of her fellow members of the assembly was making some outrageous, you know, this MAGA type was making some the usual outrageous claim that she hates America and she's not Christian and this kind of stuff. And man, her response to that, it went viral and deservedly so because it was clearly her and she just wasn't having it. Yep. And I thought that was a fantastic example, but it's, again, it's unique to each person. When Obama came along, of course we got the flood of Obama imitators. Um, But Obama is Obama, you know, and that's not going to work the same way for everybody else. And if it's clear you're imitating it, you know, that's, that's counterproductive. Also, I think it's great that you point out the preacher component there, because obviously Obama had studied the work of black preachers. And that's another grand tradition of stirring rhetoric. That doesn't happen by accident. Somebody like Martin Luther King came from a tradition in the black church. And the rhythms, those rhythms come from the King James Bible to a large extent. Some of them come from the spirituals um, and even, you know, the work songs and things back in slavery days. But even there, that's a hybrid of African influences and the European influences. 
and especially the King James Bible, Bible which, whether you're religious, Christian or not, it's, it's one of the fountainheads of English literature, the rhythms in the King James Bible. And, and many of the most stirring speeches you hear are following those rhythms. And when you listen to a Martin Luther King or a Barack Obama in that tradition, you are hearing those same rhythms. Mm-hmm. And you can't pull that off, you know, if, if you're not part of that tradition. But it's an example of how it can work. And as I say, there are other ways to do it. But what does not work is to just run through the same old tired, you know, tricks that political consultants have been coaching people through over and over and over again, because then you're just training people not to trust you and and even to dislike you, because by this time, you know, people recognize it. (laughs) This stuff, these tricks worked in, you know, like the 60s when they were new. But people are just drowning in media now, and they've become very cynical about it all. I think Uh, the person we both talked about is um, Mallory McMorrow. There we go. Yeah, she was um, she was attacked by a Republican colleague who falsely accused her of wanting to groom and sexualize kindergartners. And um, she part of what her response was. What? But I'm sorry to interrupt, but you can see what the technique is on the Republican side there. Mm. It doesn't matter that that's obviously not true. The Mm -hmm. only point is to plant the image of sexual assault on children in your mind. Yep. And and And, this uh, is an actual technique. And the Republican colleague apparently sent out fundraising um, emails that that made these accusations. And part of what McMorrow said, I'm the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme because you can't claim that you're targeting marginalized kids in the name of parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I am one of them. And she went on for like five minutes and she ended by saying, hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. We will not let hate win. She really she was passionate. She was angry, but she still took the high road. And I think it was this marvelous combination of intellect and feeling that really resonated with people. You're right. She became a viral sensation. Yeah, because it felt real, you know, and Mm -hmm. and again, you get there was some righteous anger there. Um, Exactly. That's a good way to put it. Righteous anger. Yeah, Democrats used to be better at this kind of politics, like just talking like real people. When did we lose that? What happened? I think it started during the 60s as, you know, it was a side effect of prosperity. In the baby boom generation, there was just this enormous boost, just explosion of prosperity after World War II. In the United States, while Europe collapsed, it was a huge boom to the United States uh, once the war was over, obviously. But the war had stimulated just this incredible surge of industrial production. And the U.S. had such amazing natural resources. It was just so you know, blessed with all of these natural advantages, the people, you know, just democracy itself, um, that the U.S. had this incredible boom, and, and ordinary people were able to send their kids to college in, in large numbers. There's, plus there's the GI Bill and all that. 
But the, one of the downsides was that Democrats shifted from being the blue party, blue collar party of working people, towards increasingly the party of a college educated elite. I think that it's a fair critique of Democrats that they come across that way, mm-hmm. and and you get trained. I think we one of, we have a big problem in our education system that it is has become so rational, so rationalized it loses sight of all of the the poetry and beauty and art and mystery that makes up what we actually care about in life. Even when we study art and literature and music in, in schools, and I remember this, we learn how to analyze them. And and the only way we can appreciate them is by figuring out, quote, what they mean. Yeah. As if they need to be translated into logic and you know rationality and propositions. Um, and all the mystery is just gone. So you're left with just this husk the analytical explanation of what this is about. So it's a, it's a tall order to overcome this, but it's part of what we have to do. We have to bring back these arts of rhetoric, which is essentially a form of poetry. And it's not necessarily lying and manipulating and misleading people. This is the way Plato and a lot of um, rationalists have always portrayed it. This is why Plato hated the sophists, but the sophists were teachers of rhetoric, and it's a crucially valuable skill. And it doesn't mean that everybody tries to imitate Obama <laughs> or tries to imitate Trump or whatever. Um, you find your own voice. Yeah. It has to be a real voice. Another person you know, who's good at this is John Tester in Montana, constantly being reelected in, in Montana, of all places. And he's not Obama. <laughs> he's not Cicero. He comes across as a regular Montana ranching type guy and who clearly speaks the language of his constituents and they clearly like him, even though almost all of them are in a different party from him. Spencer, it is delightful to talk with you. Uh, The hour always just flies by when we're together. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with our audience today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you as always, Joan. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.